Why science fiction? Because there are no closed doors, no walls. I mean, the only rule is if you use science, you should use it accurately. Um, you can look at, examine, play with anything, absolutely anything. That's the award-winning author Octavia E. Butler explaining why she writes science fiction in an interview with talk show host Charlie Rose from the year 2000. Butler passed away in 2006, long before Make America Great Again became a trademarked cultural phenomenon. But one of Butler's best-known books, Parable of the Sower has just been turned into a graphic novel that shows how prescient she was about the impacts of climate change, racism, and wealth inequality. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. In this installment of Fiction Science, the team behind the new graphic novel talks about the process that has given Octavia E. Butler's time-honored tale a brand new look. Although it's been 15 years since Octavia E. Butler died outside her home north of Seattle, her science fiction works are as relevant today as they were when she lived. Her themes of diversity and empowerment, and her cosmic perspective about humanity's destiny to take root amongst the stars, resonate deeply with a new generation. This year, NASA paid tribute to her legacy by naming the spot on Mars where its Perseverance rover touched down Octavia E. Butler Landing. Bringing Butler's writings to life in a new medium is a daunting task, but it's a task that Damian Duffy and John Jennings have mastered. Duffy has written the script, and Jennings has created the artwork for graphic novels that are based on two of Butler's novels, Kindred and Parable of the Sower. Now they're working on Parable of the Talents, the sequel to Parable of the Sower. These novels are serious stuff, with plenty of death and destruction, so it doesn't seem quite right to call the adaptations created by Duffy and Jennings comic books. But these books do add an intensely visual dimension to Butler's tales, which are set in the tumultuous era that starts in the year 2024. My co-host for the Fiction Science Podcast, science fiction writer Dominica Fetiplace, joined me for a Zoom video conference with Damian Duffy and John Jennings. And we started out by asking Damian to summarize Parable of the Sower. Parable of the Sower, written in, or I'm sorry, published in 1993 by Octavia Butler, as the story of a young woman, Lauren Oya Alamina, uh, taking place in a, a fictional uh, 2020s world where there's uh, huge amounts of uh, climate catastrophe, uh, income inequality, uh, sort of uh, political and social division, uh, violence, turbulence, uh, destruction of sort of public education, just really hard to believe fictional stuff. And um, the uh, I keep doing that joke and it's not funny at all, but um, it, it makes me laugh. <laughs> she laughed. I haven't heard it before. So. It's sad, actually. But anyway, you know so yeah, it was uh, uh, Butler wrote the novel as a uh, if this goes on type of science fiction novel. Uh, she intended it 
as sort of a warning to what she saw as the end result of kind of the uh, unfettered neoconservative neoliberal capitalism that started uh, for her, to her mind, especially under uh, Ronald Reagan. And um, it turned out she was right on the money with basically a lot of her predictions, um, which is part of what I think drew us to adapting the the novel uh, mm-hmm. right now. It, it seemed very prescient to the current sort of political climate, the uh, ecological climate, and um, just uh, something that's really necessary. Uh, but also because it's the story of Lauren founding, or in her words, discovering a new religion called Earthseed, uh, which is meant to sort of um, shape change, to make people able to deal with the sort of uh, dramatic and often life-altering circumstances of constant change and sort of to find a way through, to find a way to a more hopeful future. Um, yeah, how was that? That was really good. <laughs> I'm like, that's, I mean, it sounds like you've read it a, a million times. Right? <laughs> Only like 14. Oh, okay. That's, that's less than a million, but still that's a lot. No, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. And so basically I, you know, Damien's, uh, Damien was charged with taking that really complex, uh, pressing story and turning it into a comic book script, which I don't know if you've seen a full, a full blown comic book script, but it kind of looks like a screenplay a little bit. Um, but it's basically broken down into panels and stuff and, you know, it's kind of like directions that Damien writes to me. I mean, a lot of times when, when you're um, working as a team, the, the script is really, the audience is really the artist, right? Because you're trying to uh, describe what's happening scene by scene. And so my job was to take Damien's uh, really, really great adaptation and turn it into a graphic novel. So that, that's, that was my, my charge. So I basically handled all the art. Um, a team of, of coloring assistants and Damien is also the letterer. So he basically is also responsible for editing whatever text he can, which is terrifying because Octavia Butler's words. <laughs> um, and then and then putting them into, you know, speech bubbles, sound effects, and all of the different captions that accompanied the, you know, the different internal dialogue. I have a question for you, John, as an illustrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you um, come up with the character design for the main character, Lauren. And she also has this like um, this special power that I thought you rendered in a very interesting way. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that too. Definitely. definitely. Well, um, I wanted her to, ha- I wanted her to have kind of a, uh, cause she starts as she's a teenager, right? When she's like 15. Right. And I wanted to, to have something or we wanted her to have something that was kind of, um, I don't know, to a sort of fun, you know, we might have to, you know, there's a, there's a frivolous nature or, or like a fashion, fashion centered aspect to, you know, how her hair is cut, that kind of thing. Right. But it's also really inspired by a friend of ours named Emma Isley Dukan or what, you know, back in the day, she used to wear her hair with this kind of shaved uh, dreadlock look and just thought it was like very funky, fashionable. And it's something that maybe like, you know, a younger uh, person would wear. You know, as, it also is a really good indicator of like age, you know, as far as like, you know, as, as she changes through the story, because she becomes a very old lady by the end of like the second book, you know, which we've already started working on. So, yeah, so that was one aspect of it, too, is to, is to try to make her, you know, look, look like a teenager, but also have a very natural, organic look, you know, as well. The other thing that was a, that was a major thing was uh, because of all the hair changes, um, you know, she basically cuts her hair, like, for instance, when she goes out on the road, 
because she was trying to look more masculine, you know, more like a man because of just uh, to protect herself from being assaulted or attacked or robbed or whatever. And um, we came with this idea to, to put a mole on her on her cheek, on her right cheek, which is also kind of like a, sim- a symbol of like a seed. We were thinking, oh, that's a seed. So we're kind of marking her as the sower, so to speak. And it's, it was a really uh, good way to make sure that she's consistently, you know, marked in a certain, in a particular way. And uh, yeah, as far as like the power is concerned, uh, Damien and I early on considered different ways to uh, to show her hyper empathy syndrome. Um, there's a there's a, a early um, instance in her childhood when um, one of her younger brothers uses a magic marker to kind of like pretend like he's been uh, cut or something like that. And but the way that the hyper empathy works is almost like her mind tricks her into. Uh, it's very psychosomatic, you know, so basically it, it, it tricks her into thinking that she's actually bleeding. So we thought that the color red would be a really great way to kind of connect those those moments, you know. And then what starts to happen later on is that um, we found like through the storytelling that the hyper empathy kind of like glow, I guess you call it that, became a really good trail for your eye to like lead yourself, lead us to the panels too. So it actually worked out really well, we thought, just from a storytelling standpoint. It ended up as a reader. Sometimes it feels like you're reading her pain, uh, which seems like a really appropriate approach to the character and the novel. Um, so yeah, so as a compositional tool, the hyperempathy syndrome ended up being like a really useful way to add depth to the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, what I was gonna say is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> spots is when we first uh, introduced hyperempathy. It's like this really cool double page spread that Damien designed, and she's kind of on the bicycle, and you can see almost like a call and response of what she's seeing and then what she's feeling on the second page, you know, and it's, you know, it's used a lot when we talk about the book because it really sets up the tone of how she is as a, as a, as a protagonist, you know? Yeah. Now I have a question for the both of you. Did you ever start to feel like you, you were having hyper empathy when you were rendering this hyper empathy? <laughs> Kinda. Um, I mean, I, I had to get off social media while uh, I was working on this. I mean, I still try to stay off now, but um there were far too many moments where I was writing the script and I would look at the news and the same thing was happening in the news that was like in the script. Um, so this feeling of this like terrible warning of this, you know, horrible apocalyptic future we're heading for. And then like looking and seeing it happening in real time. Um, I don't know if it's exactly hyper empathy, but I was definitely really feeling deeply the warning that uh, Octavia Butler embedded in these novels um so yeah so i mean that was just kind of a a a large overall struggle i think working with both uh sower and talents is you know sort of honestly portraying all the all the the feelings um and the the terror of the stories but making it through to the other side Mm -hmm. that's exactly right i mean i was like it was really crazy it's like our first adaptation of octavia butler's work was kindred right and so a lot of that happens uh, on a plantation in Maryland, right? And I was living in Buffalo, you know, on the East Coast. And so it was interesting, like, when we when we decided to do these two books, um, I ended up taking a job in California. And so I actually now live pretty much in the same area that the story takes place in. <laughs> so, like, there's actually a character from Riverside, like, in the second book, you know, because um, we live in the Inland Empire. And so literally I could go outside and it's like, look at some of the mountains that they could have been inside, you know, or, or like sleeping in or like driving on the highway that they're hiking down, that kind of stuff. And um, 
you know, a lot of times, you know, for the book, you know, I used uh, color schemes and stuff taken directly from photos of the landscapes and of the sky, you know, and, 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 and things like that. But the other thing to kind of echo what Damien was saying is that while we're working on this book, you know, it took me about, I think about eight months to draw it thereabouts. I think that's right. Eight? Wasn't it eight? I thought it was longer. Was it? Because I, I mean, like, maybe the rough sketches or like the full drawing. I thought full drawing, we were closer to a year. Maybe it, it doesn't more. matter. It's all know. way too quick. It, it's it was all way too quick. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe so. Because I felt like I was working on it like exactly the same time that my wife was pregnant with Jackson, my son. And so, you know, we're, we're making this book and also, you know, a little black kid who's going to be introduced to this world, you know, um, that is kind of echoing some of the things in the, in the, in the story. Like, you know, we have fire tornadoes and, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, joblessness and homelessness, uh, in the space. And yeah, it's just, I feel like when I was leaving the, uh, the, the apartment complex to go and walk my dog, that was like stepping into the parable series, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was, uh, I don't, yeah, again, like I don't know if it's hyper empathy, but it definitely was very surreal. Yeah, a lot has happened since the novel came out. And in terms even of white and black uh, relations, here's a, mm -hmm. a white guy and a black guy working together on a graphic novel where the main character is a black woman. Mm -hmm. And the novel was written by a black woman. How, how does your working relationship work? Is that something that enters into the work, uh, your different perspectives and, and your different backgrounds? I mean, yes, in that, I mean, well, one thing is, um, despite, I'm the white guy, right, John? You are. Yeah, it is me. Um, That's <laughs> another joke. Okay, um, but despite our differences, I do feel like uh, John and I have uh, had such a strong working relationship for going on like 16 or 17 years now because our uh, our perspectives are, are pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Um not to discount like my own white privilege or, you know, cis hetero male privilege or anything like that, but just in terms of um, our political views and our ideas about what art is good for and what types of stories we want to tell. Um, we've always had very uh, similar ideas about that, um, which I think has just kind of made us for a strong working relationship between us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally agree. And the other thing too, is like, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 10 years older than Damien. And so I have this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, the perspective of coming from someone who's 50 looking kind of at the stuff that we're working on and the types of terrors that we want to bring to the world to teach the world how to be better. <laughs> That's what we, those, those are some of the things we think about a lot, I think, in the world. In the world. So like what Damien is saying is totally true. Like when we first met, you know, and started talking, it's like, oh, you're actually like our political views of how we think about identity politics and about art making, about comics, about hip hop, about just a lot of things, you know, we have very similar tastes in like, you know, music and and film and things of that nature. And it just it just makes a really great working relationship. And um, yeah, like Damien said, we've been doing this, you know, as a team for like I don't know, 16, 17 years now and in different, you know, uh, arenas. And like we started out as curators and working in those more more like artistic spaces, like more traditional art spaces. We did like we did like a lot of experimental comics. We did some of the first like uh, interactive comics in, in virtual spaces. And we've been doing a lot of really interesting things around the comics form. And it just, it just kind of circled back into making like, you know, this type of work, you know. And I think um, 
in part, sort of, there's an educational aspect to, you know, having the honor and privilege of adapting Octavia Butler's work to a new form, uh, where we also get to be sort of um, ambassadors of Octavia Butler, and uh, hopefully introduce or reintroduce her to readers. So, you know, I think, uh, given our shared history in academia, and like being teachers, and also both being really interested in uh, comics, not only as uh, a form of entertainment, but also as a form of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all that really fed well into these projects. And then also our work in one way or another has always been about uplifting diversity in comics and uh, calling attention to all the great work that is already there, but is often underrepresented or ignored. Right. And I think because we had already you know, had a decade plus under our belts thinking about those issues and working with them, I do think that helped us a lot um, in our adaptation, in the process of adapting these um, but also along with so much help from, uh, with Kindred, our first editor, Sheila Keenan. Yeah. Charlotte Greenbaum's our editor for Parable of the Sower. Uh, the author, Tanana Reeve Dew, uh, was a, a consultant on Parable of the Sower. Um, you know, we, we've definitely, we're all the better for who we get to work with. <laughs> Talking about the educational aspect of the uh, graphic novel, are there things that you felt you wanted to emphasize or perhaps de-emphasize from Octavia's original novel just because of the situation that we find ourselves in today? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't so much emphasizing or de-emphasizing. There was, I remember working on the novel and kind of wishing I could push some of the critiques of police brutality that are like a little bit in the novel, but aren't really there, especially since uh, I was working on the writing uh, during, you know, 2019. Is that 2019? It all blurs together. But, you know, when there's a a great deal of protest and outrage over police brutality in the United States. Um, But ultimately the story is the story and it's hard to, there isn't a lot of room to change or alter the, the basic tenor of the novel or the plot points. And I think overall, like uh, both readers and the Butler estate, they don't really want that. Like they don't want an entirely new work or um, a work that uh, changes drastically from what the novel uh, puts forth. That being said, there was also uh, just like, we have a page count in our contract before we start that yep. we can't really deviate from. So stuff does have to be cut out. Uh, so there were things I was kind of frustrated that we weren't able to leave in that I wish we could have, uh, which is basically everything that I had to cut out. But um, especially there's a bunch of stuff at the end about how sort of debt uh, institutionalized debt slavery is working in the world of the story. And we we're able to get it a little bit, but I, I do kind of wish we had, you know, 20 more pages. I would have put in more about that, I guess, but yeah. I don't know, John, anything. No, I mean, not, not visually. I mean, I think, I think for me, it's like, you know, I'm, I was really satisfied with, first of all, when I read the script, I was like, it was really like reading the book. You know, I was like, yo, I just read, I just read Parable of the Sword as a graphic novel <laughs> script. You know, it was like very, very clean, you know, to start with, you know, there was very few edits. I think Tanana Reeve had very few notes on it, you know, and I think what it was is that after the harrowing <laughs> uh, process of writing Kindred, you know, which was just, whew, you know, because first, the first thing that you have to realize is like, you know, whenever you are trying to adapt something into another medium, you're already changing it. You know what I'm saying? That's the first thing because, you know, different media have, they have very different affordances, you know, in comics, 
um, are, it's, a, it's a really kind of like allegorical, surreal medium, you know, how it deals with text and image. And what's interesting about comics is like every aspect of a comic book page is a storytelling opportunity, you know? And so it's a very different type of writing, you know, and, and making. And so I feel that, you know, overall, um, very satisfied with um, a lot of the things that were happening with the, uh, you know, with the story, you know, as far as like, I, I don't think that, I don't think I would have added anything um, at the moment, but uh, I think as far as like a storytelling problem, I think that we pretty did a pretty decent job of trying to unpack what uh, Octavia was trying to say through the story. John, are you tempted to uh, use uh, references, visual references to the current state of affairs? Uh, I can imagine somebody trying to work in a MAGA bumper sticker or something like that into the artwork. You know, um, we've thought, we've talked often about, you know, particularly in, this, in the second book with Jarrett, you know, but she actually has like a really strong description of him, right, Damien? Because he, he comes yeah. across more like a Reagan, right? As far as like the way she described him, like black hair. Yeah, because um, yeah, in Parable of the Talents, uh, there's a president who comes to power under the slogan, Make America Great Again. But that was actually a slogan Reagan used yeah. to Trump steals everything. Right. But um, I, especially with the second book in writing it, I think that was when you and I talked most about it, John. I was like, should somebody be wearing one of those hats or like make Christian America great again? Because that's like. Yeah. Just like, yeah, because really like it's almost like if Pence and, and Trump were like fused together into one being. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think, well, we haven't, John's just starting to work on the uh, character designs and artwork yeah. now for Parable of the Talent. So I don't think we've decided fully yet, but I'm currently of the mind of, like, I don't want to give that movement that much that credit. energy. Exactly. I don't I think they, exactly. I don't think they deserve to get to be in the novel, the graphic novel. Right. Cause like you, you already get the parallels, I think even without that. Right, right, right. I'm just trying to focus on the main, the protagonists. And I think one of the trickiest things is, is aging the characters, you know, uh, making sure that they are consistent with the first book and they look like they could be, the older grown-up versions of um, the, like for instance, her brother, uh, Olamina's brother, is it Marcus, I believe? Yep. Yeah, Marcus, you know, he, he you know, survives and becomes an older, uh, becomes a, a grown man and a, a minister and, you know, also a terrible person, but because uh, <laughs> of what he does to Spoilers. Her. I'm sorry, but it's just, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure that, that yeah, I mean, to make sure that, that uh, you know, that he's consistent or everybody's consistent. So that's what I've been working on a lot now is, for instance, now I have definite ways, the definite renditions of what Olamina looks like in various parts of our life now, which is really exciting. So, Yeah, I mean, we're excited to read the next book. Can you guys tell us when it will be out and where you guys are at in the crafting of it? Well, right now, I mean, Damien's uh, script has been approved. I'm currently working on the the you know, the designs. I'm hoping to have a bunch of them done over the summer. That's, that's, that's my, my goal is a lot of characters. Uh, um, and hopefully, I don't know, 18 months or two years, something like that. I don't know. We, we it's a long process. And the thing is, is that, um, with our other, you know, projects and things going on, um, you know, we're juggling stuff. Cause I'm, you know, my full, my full time professor too. And I have to like be mindful of different schedules and also like, foolishly trying to, to raise a, a, 
you know, a kid who's two years, who's two right now. So it's like, you know, that is foolish to try to do. I have two kids. He has two kids. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so foolish. So, yeah. So we, as soon as we can, I, I really want to start breaking, do, doing like the advanced readers copy stuff, like hopefully like by that early fall. That's what I'm shooting for, you know, schedule wise, because there's a couple of things over to somebody to, to finish up. But, uh, but I definitely want to get it out because I know people want it the sort of disclaimer I always want to give with Parable of the Talents is because John and I are dumb. Every <laughs> book we do is way longer than the previous book. And that's still true with Parable of the Talents. It's yes. like 80 pages longer than Parable of the Sower or something. Ridiculous. Yeah, um, it's like 188 pages. I'm like, oh, jeez. Yeah, so you can do what uh, Peter Jackson did with The Hobbit, break it up into three graphic novels oh. or something like that. I would, except then also if you look at what he did with The Hobbit, he made it not good. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> I take yeah, that. I I have take it. it doesn't need to be too much. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, don't, get, don't, get, don't get us doing that. Damien, I wanted to ask you uh, about the the things that you talked about uh, over the past year. You, you've mentioned that you were dealing with depression at the same time that you were dealing with the book. And, and you've already talked a little bit about how that's a tough situation when, when you're uh, adapting a book as dark as the parable of the sower can be. So I just wanted to find out uh, what's the situation with you. Is, is it... Uh, finishing that book does that give you a break or are you right into it again with parable of the talents thank you for asking um it, it's uh been odd um so the way the schedule worked with writing um parable of the talents i actually finished my first draft of the script it was uh, early march i was in uh, pasadena where octavia butler's from uh, john and i had given a talk at the huntington library with uh, nala hopkinson uh, who wrote the introduction for the graphic novel also. And um, I had just gone to see Toshi Rian's uh, Parable of the Sower opera. Uh, so I went back to, there, it was like a, it's like Howard Johnson's or Holiday Inn, I forget, in Pasadena, where I guess Octavia Butler had stayed when she would come back to like Toxic Community College. And um, I had just seen this opera and like, it was at UCLA. So there were like a couple movie stars there. It's so, like Jason Momoa was like in the audience and stuff. So just seen an opera of the book we just finished putting out and Aquaman was there. <laughs> I went back to the hotel where Octavia Butler used to stay and I was kind of strolling around her hometown. And then I finished uh, talents and then I went home and then all the shelter in place orders came down. Pretty much. Yeah. So I'm still sort of processing how surreal all that was. Um, it's not Aquaman's fault. I feel like I was making it his fault. He's fine. I'm sure he's a lovely person. Um, but, uh, it was just very weird. Uh, kind of like John was saying, it was like, I felt like I finished it and then I went to go live in it. Um, and, uh, oddly, I do feel like in the end of that process, not that we're done with the novel, but at least finishing the script for the second novel, I think I felt a little bit better than I would have had we not done this work, making it through 2020. Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents has this strange way of just like taking you to the lowest lows, but then you feel a little bit stronger for having survived it. Um, I think that's true as a reader. And I think it's also true as adapters. You know, that being said, I like, I think most people with depression, it's not like it ever goes away. It's just something you sort of deal with or, or have uh, throughout your life. Um, but I mean, working on the books also uh, led me to go back to, I went to therapy for a little bit and that helped and 
just sort of uh, doing my best to balance all the crazy in my brain. But um, yeah, but no, I, I, I think overall, um, and ask me again in two years, but at this point, I feel better having done this work than not. Yeah, great. And I think it's going to help a lot of people too and bring this work to a wider audience. Um, I wanted to know, uh, each of you, do you have a part of this book that you're particularly proud of? Hmm. Besides finishing it? <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Do you have like a favorite scene? Oh, man. You know, it's interesting because um, one of my favorite, well, this is funny. It's kind of like one of my favorite things is that I, I put like myself and Damien and our editor and, and executive editor in the crowd of people walking down the, down the road. You look super <laughs> look in the background. Yeah. So it's like me, Damien, Charlotte, and Charlie, like walking with the. Uh, that's like an Easter egg. So nice, yes, yeah, it's an Easter egg. You can see us. You know, that's the second time we've done something like that too. Yeah. Um, and then also, well, now that I know what you look like, I right, can right. Uh, no, go back and look at that scene. Yeah, it's like one of the crowd scenes, where, like at the beginning where they're walking. And I hate to say it, but Damien wrote this great like scene where, where where Lauren has to defend herself with this knife and um you know it's <clears throat> and she stabs this guy and um you know and of course she's feeling it as she's killing him because that's how her her um the her, her the symptoms of, of hyper empathy work and I don't know I just feel like it turned out to be a really energetic like it's one of my favorite pages even though it's like really violent and messed up <laughs> but it's uh I don't know if it, it design wise and just like the way the colors turned out, you know, it just really, um, I really liked it, you know, as far as, and I hate to say that because it's just so violent, but aesthetically it's one of my favorite pages, you know. That's true of kind of everything in the book though, where it's like, that's a good point. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but that's not the word I meant. I I it. <laughs> exactly. Right. I, uh, real quick, like Easter egg wise, also um, some of the books that Lauren has in her bedroom early on, one of them is Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, Brown. Uh, yeah. which is itself inspired by like Parable of the Sower. Um, so there's some like a couple Easter eggs like that. I think there's pretty sure I put an Octavia Butler book in there somewhere too. I like to do that too. Um, but I think one of my favorite scenes, or I don't know, what one of my favorite things, like the way it turned out was, um, John Ray mentioned the two page spread where we first introduced the hyper empathy syndrome. Uh, and you get like sort of half of Lauren's face looking at you and half a kind of in profile and sort of explaining through her point of view how it works. Cause I remember designing that, I wasn't totally sure how well it would come across. Um, or, you know, if people would read and be like, wait, why did her leg fall off suddenly? Or, you know, something like that. And uh, I mean, John did just such an amazing job of rendering it and, and giving it uh, life and texture and weight that I think uh, it's been, it's been really heartening to see it used a lot in previews mm -hmm. or people ask about it um, and how successful it ended up being both establishing like hyper empathy syndrome, which is a, a weird thing to try to explain. Um, and then also just kind of the world of the book in, in like a single spread. Yeah. Uh, and then the one I thought John was going to say for his favorite is there's this shootout towards the end. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, my favorite ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's I, I, there's like four or five um, panels on the page, but it's done in such a way where you can kind of read it any direction you want. And it still makes sense. It really captures like the chaos of that moment really well. Um, so, yeah. One, one of my favorite things about that is that the way that Damien wrote the 
the scene is like, <clears throat> and the sh- it's a shootout. And so you see the res- you see the response of the shot, you know what I'm saying? So it's almost like when you read the shot, it's actually happening in this, in real time, you know, because you look over and say, oh, that's what happened. You know, you know the way you react to it, to maybe possibly react to a shot, hearing a shot and then seeing the results of it, you know? And the last thing I wanted to mention too is that I really like the page breaks, you know, like the mapping systems that we used uh, as far as like the page breaks go, because they're on a journey. And so we were really into this idea of like using like the mapping systems to kind of show the progression of her journey. And um, that one of the maps, and this is the last thing I drew actually for the book, you know, one of the maps was um, drawn by her, her father, the Reverend Olamina, to show her where the money was hidden under the lemon trees, right? And I thought it was supposed to be like this elaborate, like um, schematic of the house and stuff. So I was getting ready to like dig in and like do this kind of like blueprint. And Dave was like, no, 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 it's like a scratch. It's like something you would scratch on a piece of paper, like, you know, like really quickly. I was like, oh, okay. So, so it was like the last drawing. It's probably like the simplest drawing in the book because it really looks like someone had scribbled onto you got a piece of notebook paper. I love that's I love that. So oh, I should have said, and I actually I made one of the other maps. I made there's a road map with like coffee stains on it. Oh yeah, I made that one. That's the exactly. best <laughs> book, obviously. Obviously, it's the best thing in the book. That that ring is so realistic. <laughs> <laughs> That was a great I, 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 I'm loving this conversation. I, I guess my last question would be just bringing it back to Octavia Butler and, and her work. And, and uh, do you ever think about what you'd like to ask Octavia about or what you'd like to show her if, if she were still with us? Hmm. I always imagine her criticizing me. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think I would just be like sort of starstruck and awkward and just be like, hi, yeah, like the comic. <laughs> no, like, I don't know. That's a tough um, one. I mean, because she was so brilliant and so amazing. Like I would, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a really, really tough question. Yeah. Maybe I wish we had the opportunity. Some, some of the new X-Men. But I, heard she, I heard it. Wasn't she an X-Men fan? Yeah. She collected comics and she had a lot of uh, X-Men. And like, I think, they said some of her patternist series, some of that stuff is inspired a little bit by like early X-Men comics. Yeah. So I would think I would, I would love to get into a, like a really cool conversation with her about X-Men maybe. <laughs> yeah. That would be kind of cool. Especially like the new Jonathan Hickman powers of X, you know, weirdness that happened. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, we should have a conversation about X-Men sometime. I, that, that's pretty uh, cool. But, yeah. <laughs> so, Let's do it right now. Let's get into it. <laughs> Is good. Is next, okay, sorry. N- next on Fiction Science, X-Men. <laughs> oh, what have you done, Damien? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. Really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to Parable of the Talents. It's going to be a hot one. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. For more about Octavia Butler... Parable of the Sower, and all the cool stuff that Damien Duffy and John Jennings are up to, check out my Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. You'll find a reading list of great graphic novels with scientific twists. And while you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. I'd like to thank Damien, John, and Abrams Books for the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, composed by yours truly. 
Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.